Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> Do you think that maybe you're a bisexual? I don't like that word. Why? When I hear bisexual, I think lame slut. It's tacky, it's gauche, it makes you seem disingenuous, like your genitals have no allegiance, you know? Like you have no criteria for people, it's just an open door policy. It's not a nice thing to be, it's not a cool thing to be, and it makes my fucking skin crawl. All I'm asking is that you proceed with caution. Hey y'all and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And you just heard a clip of Iranian-American filmmaker, actor, and writer Desiree Akvan in her Hulu show, The Bisexual. It centers around her character, Layla, who is in her early 30s, has exclusively dated women, and is having a very hard time coming to terms with the fact that she's also attracted to men. Does anyone know an actual bisexual? I'm pretty sure bisexuality is a myth. Yeah, that it was created by ad executives to sell flavored vodka. <laughs> Layla's dismissiveness here is a fictionalized version of Desiree's real-life journey of confronting her own internalized biphobia and coming to terms with her sexuality. And her show The Bisexual is just one way that Desiree is now using her own experiences to flip the script on female sexuality and desire on screen. It was such a shock when I first started having sex where I was like, oh, this is behind the curtain. But then also like, oh, there's so much shame around this. Like, I really don't understand why this thing that literally brings life to the world is something we're so afraid to have an honest discussion about. So today, y'all, we're having a very honest discussion with Desiree about fitting in, coming out, and getting over the lies pop culture tells us about what sex and romance should look like. It's all to find out, how do you fall in love with your own sexuality, especially when you're not supposed to? What kind of girl were you raised to be? <laughs> Obedient, for sure. I was definitely raised to be a traditional Iranian daughter. I remember one time I was, I don't know if I was 10 or 11, I like was talking to a teacher about what I was going to do that night. And then I was like, you know, then my mother will lay out my clothes and I will wear them the next day. And she was like, why don't you pick your own clothes? And I was like, it's simply just not done. Like, <laughs> mother likes a pinafore. Uh, she had a very, you know, 
old-fashioned French schoolgirl aesthetic, and I was to follow it by a T, but uh, to a T. Also, that's another thing I picked up from immigrant parents is, like, getting colloquialism a little bit wrong. <laughs> like, money's not in a bush, okay? You're like, wait, what? Like, I said pomegranate for a good, like, 23 years until my friends were like, you know, that's not how you say it. Desiree was born and raised in the suburbs just north of New York City. Her parents and older brothers settled there after leaving Tehran in the wake of the Iranian Revolution. In elementary school, she started writing plays and even created a sketch comedy show to be performed during recess called Friday Night Live. And it was Desiree's way of keeping herself company since she wasn't so great at making unscripted friends. My parents' mentality was similar to people who were a generation older than they were. And so was their aesthetic. So I related far more to my friends' parents than to them and their their parents' gripes. Like, I remember I spent, like, every birthday party in the kitchen helping your mom, like, ice a cake and be like, well, how do you find it, like, to compromise your graduate degree and not pursue that, but having had, like, Adrian at such a young age? Like, <laughs> I was... Well, I mean, I was just kind of a, a loser, and that was far more accessible talking to your mom about her choices than trying to, like, get the pinata. Yeah. <laughs> By the time Desiree went to high school with her brother in the Bronx, she felt even more clueless about how to fit in. And we commuted for about, like, an hour and a half each way. And all of our classmates lived in Manhattan. So we were super isolated. Um, but my brother, you know, he did sports and he was really, we went to the kind of school where like doing well academically was like a real, so, had a real social currency. Um, I mean, but it was also a normal school. Like so did, so did being hot and rich. So all those things <laughs> gave you social currency. I did not have any of them. I wasn't like out there having sex or doing drugs. I was like ugly, overweight and friendless. Desiree isn't being self-deprecating either. Oh, okay. Well, maybe just a little bit. But Kristen, when she was in high school, you know, there was no Facebook or Instagram yet, but there were these briefly trendy attractiveness rating websites like HotOrNot.com. Oh, yeah. I remember those. Well, it was through one of those kinds of sites that Desiree's classmates rated her as the ugliest girl in school. Caroline, I would have died. Like, I knew I wasn't popular or dateable, but to see it statistically proven on the internet? Mm -mm. No. No, no, no. Heartbreaking. And combined with her already feeling socially and geographically isolated from her peers, it's not terribly surprising that Desiree lived vicariously through the teens she saw on screen. So I spent all my time learning what friendship was, what being American was, and what sex was and, and power was through the characters I saw on, like, Saved by the Bell and Brady Bunch and Family Matters. I'm I'm relating really hard to this because yeah. I was homeschooled from second through eighth grade. Similar. Wait, so does that mean that ninth grade or eighth grade you you entered high school? Ninth grade, I went to high school. Like at first, I felt like mm. I adjusted really well, but when it came down to actually like interacting and like figuring out how to maintain friendships and also like what to do with like my horniness or just like <laughs> dumb boys um the movies quickly proved to be very unhelpful i never had my makeover oh, totally. moment you know oh i was i'm still waiting <laughs> right? <laughs> right yeah so caroline all three of us you me and desiree are millennials and we were starting high school in the very late 90s early 2000s when i would argue 
teen pop culture was peak heteronormative horny. I mean, you've got Britney Spears and boy bands on After School MTV. You got Dawson's Creek on Primetime and so many high school rom-coms at like every single sleepover. <laughs> yes. And true to those rom-com rules, Kristen, attractiveness and sex were totally dictated by the dudes and desire was pretty much off limits for teenage leading ladies. The movies told us lies. They fed us these lies of, like, girls being super chaste and reluctant and kind of unaware of their own bodies and hotness. Like, oh, who, me? Oh, these just grew overnight. <laughs> like, very Jessica Rabbit nonchalant. But, like, I was so fucking aware of my body and my desire and everything I wanted and how bad, like... I was raging. I felt like I had, like, like Angelina Jolie-style Gia, like, in my pants and <laughs> the body of, like, Jack Black. And I was like, <laughs> what do we do? Like, between the juxtaposition of these two, like, there was just so much desire. I felt, like, too much. And none of the films I watched, nothing I saw reflected that. It was always, well, also, like, also those shows are also, like, male protagonists. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget, like, the first episode of Saved by the Bell where Zach Morris pulls out this, like, humongous life-side cardboard cutout of Kelly Kapowski that, like, he craved this girl so badly and she was so awesome that she he had, like, a cardboard cutout of her and he was like, I'm going to fuck this this year. <laughs> I'm going to call her up on my giant telephone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's It was always, like, I think I related a lot to the dudes. I related a lot to the guys trying to get laid to, like, how they just couldn't keep it in their pants. I think that's why, as an adult, I really appreciate Tina Belcher on Bob's Burgers. Oh, my God. (laughs) Tina Belcher is the best character for that very—I really, really, really relate to Tina. Yeah. That sweetness, that desire to, like, kill you with kindness, juxtaposed to, like, insane horniness, that is Tina to me. And I really—I think she's—yeah, she's the character that most embodies what I was going through. What kind of a maniac wakes up an hour early to write erotic fan fiction? Me. Are there any shows or movies left in the world that you haven't perved up? No. That's why I've started writing erotic friend fiction, using people at school and zombies. Oh, do the janitor and the vice principal. I think they'd have beautiful children. I did, and they don't. As you were in this, like, high school Tina Belcher sort of (laughs) life, um, what were your ideas around, like, romance and sex that were you just getting them from TV or were you trying to come up with some ideas of your own? I definitely got them from television. I think there was this idea that, you know, a guy would see you and sweep you off your feet. And also that that would be like indestructible and quite pure. Like, I think there's a myth of romantic love that is, I was very shocked, was not the truth of it. Mm. I mean, I've been in love a lot <laughs> in the past 15 years. And it's it's not what I what I swallowed as a teenager or that the myth that I came of age in. That is the truth. And so much of that romantic love in the movies happens through some sort of magical makeover, preferably timed with a high school dance of some sort, for this hunky dude to instantly fall in love with you. Cue a suddenly sexy Rachel Lee Cook circa 1999 being presented to a slack-jawed Freddie Prinze Jr. And she's all that. Gentlemen, may I present... The new, not improved, but different, Laney Box. Swing, swing. 
Rachel Lee Cook was quite petite. All those girls were quite petite. I'm a I'm a taller woman. You know, I'm five five ten, five eleven, and um, I really was sold in these films that like women should be physically vulnerable and tiny and adorable. Mm-hmm. Like every film was like, oh, she's so teeny tiny and delicate and lovely and like, oh, I just want to like take care of her. And that was something that was reflected a lot by the men in my life. I think there was something like being a, a strong looking person was a boner killer and <laughs> that it was vulnerability, that it was like petiteness that was so attractive. And that's something that I saw in a lot of films too. Like, oh, she's so vulnerable. I just want to take care of her. But the the main thing that watching so much television and not learning anything about intimacy from did was like kind of brainwash me. Like I remember when I lost my virginity, I was like, oh, that's it? I was like, oh. Right? Yeah, I was so surprised. <laughs> God, I really, really thought it would change my relationship and just like... Exactly. Or that you'll exchange something so sacred or, or sometimes it is sacred, but then also sometimes it's funny and weird. Sometimes sex is with someone you don't love and it's fantastic. Sometimes it's about like physical dominance. Sometimes it's about making someone laugh. Like, I, I just think there are so many different kinds of intimacy and so many different kinds of fucking. And I, like, I, there was no other conversation to be had. Um, or if we do, it's in the frame of, it's in the vein of like, how to please your man. Um, so like, I grew up very nervous of like, well, will I know how to please my man? Um, and it took a very long time for me to ask myself, like, well, fuck that. Am I enjoying myself? Well, this reminds me of something I've heard you say in uh, in other interviews. Maybe if a guy swept you off your feet in high school or, or if you'd morphed into some kind of hot girl like the Rachel Lee Cooks of the world, for example, it could have altered your sexual journey of figuring out what you want, like who you're attracted to. I don't know. I That was definitely something I was very ashamed of and like hadn't said out loud. Like if I had been treated differently if I had been like a hot commodity to men maybe I wouldn't have allowed myself to go here but I also think that's one of those things that is neither here nor there because desire doesn't really come from like isn't a manifestation of the way you're treated I think it's just like it pushed me into one direction but that direction was there for me when we come back Desiree comes clean about being bisexual but first Heartbreak leads to a nose job? Stick around. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. coming out was painful and isolating and scary. And this, like, self-hate of, like, I don't belong to any group. Like, I'm not even gay enough. We're back with filmmaker Desiree Akvan. Like, it's not like I grew up with this huge secret. Like, I knew I was attracted to women, but also I was attracted to dudes. And I my first love was a guy. 
So I definitely had that in the back of my head. Like, you don't even belong here. Okay, Caroline, I think it's worth pausing for a second to share a snapshot of bisexuality today. Because in the U.S., the population of self-identified bisexuals has actually tripled over the past decade. And that upswing is largely driven by women, specifically women of color, identifying as bi. But here's the twist. Bisexual people are far less likely to be publicly out than folks who identify as gay or lesbian. Which takes us back to Desiree. Yes. So when we last left her, she was struggling through high school and trying to figure out sex and romance, mostly by watching TV and movies. But all the rom-coms in the world couldn't prepare Desiree for what she calls her first romantic train wreck. And even though they didn't know all the details, Desiree's parents could tell something was wrong. So they offered her their own version of a magical makeover. They were desperate to make me happy. I mean, every parent is, and, like, Persian parents are super vocal and loving. My parents uh, kind of forced me into a nose job around that time. So that was their way of fixing it. <laughs> but to be fair, Iran is the nose job capital of the world, and it's a rite of passage, and it's one that both my parents experienced and was sort of just like, well, you're of age, and it's time. And I'd be like, I really don't want to do this. And they're like, trust us and shut up. Okay, we have to ask a follow-up question <laughs> to do that. So how old were you, and wh- why do you say that you were sort of forced into it? Did you see uh, no problem with the nose that you had? No, it was ugly. I mean, to be <laughs> fair, it was. I was not hot. Um, okay, so I did this when I was 19. I had just had my heart broken for the first time by a girl, and I couldn't tell my parents so I was home and heartbroken and lying. But I think they knew. Like, I I had introduced them to them as my special friend. But it was shameful and we shut up. But I was super heartbroken. But at 16, I wrote an article for the high school newspaper about why I would never get a nose job. <laughs> like, it was something I was very passionately against and had, like, really vocalized in a tangible way. And every year they brought it up and every year I was like... I'm super offended. No thanks. And then this time at 19, I was I was just desperate for anything. I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's do that. Let's let's get a lobotomy. Let's do. I mean, what do you think? I'll put myself in your hands. And how did it go? Did you feel any different once you had a new, felt, new nose? No, of course not. I felt closer to my parents. Hmm. I felt like weirdly like I put my faith in in the two people who made me and. When I couldn't make a decision about what I needed, I let them make it. I think I would be okay with my old nose. Changing it didn't make me feel attractive or better. I think the face I have is fine now. It's something I talk about because I never want to feel shame about it. Like, I definitely, it was a secret for five years, and then my first short film was about it. And I think I just never wanted it to be a secret that someone else had power over me for. Like, oh, I can, because I never felt like the kind of person who would get plastic surgery. So, no, rhinoplasty didn't instantly solve all of Desiree's romantic woes. You know, no Freddie Prinz or Princesses Jr. suddenly came (laughs) a-calling. But she was on the brink of experiencing an inside-out sort of makeover. Right, because speaking of keeping secrets, Desiree still hadn't come out to her family at this point. I just knew that I couldn't live worrying about what my parents wanted from me or about making them ashamed of me. 
especially being the child of immigrants. Like they have put their luxuries, their needs on the back burner forever just to give me every single opportunity and a sense of entitlement that would allow me to even be gay. Like it's not as it's not lost on me that the fact that I'm able to be a bisexual woman is 100% due to the entitlement my parents gave me. Like to their credit, I feel entitled to be like one I want something, I'll take it. That's a very Western concept. And also, I think what helped for us, which is, this isn't advice I'm giving anyone, don't do this, but the fact that my work is so personal and so much about sexuality, my parents were so supportive of me pursuing this work. Then the fact that my work started getting attention and featured a lot of frank discussion of, of sexuality, that help them transition. I think they were able to associate it with something positive in my life, whereas they thought it was going to be this huge Achilles heel and this second-class citizen lifestyle. They were like, oh, actually, this is kind of a superpower. So did you feel better after you came out? Fuck no. (laughs) Fuck no. I felt like a piece of shit for, like, years. Like, a real piece of shit. Nah, coming out is, like, People, like, you love the most in the world looking you in the eye and being like, why are you doing this to me? It's so painful if you are coming out to people who don't want that for you. And it's 100% a credit to my parents about how that transformed. I feel like they had a real choice, which was like, I could disown my kid and not have a relationship with them, or I could choose to change because they're not changing. So they changed. And... We're in a great place. They are, like, leading the acceptance parade, you know. Well, how how long did it take to kind of get to that point where it felt your relationship kind of grew from it, where you moved, you all moved through the discomfort? It took time. It took, like, pain and awful, like, like a fucking cry fest trying at a museum you know like it like took like meetings in neutral spaces like pan quotidien or moma that like you're like well we can't have a a huge knockout fight in this public space and then of course you do you're like great all right let's try again next week (laughs) um it takes a lot of discomfort but like that's the thing about a lot of big things in life though are things that matter it can be fucking unpleasant for years at a time. And it's, I think a lot of relationships and also like professional navigation is enduring some discomfort. When we come back, Desiree turns that discomfort into her show, The Bisexual. Plus a very important PSA on queefing. Honk if you're excited. (laughs) Stay tuned. I'm looking for the grown-up underwear of a woman in charge of her sexuality and not afraid of change. We're back with Desiree Akhavan, and that's a clip from her 2015 debut feature film, Appropriate Behavior, which she co-wrote, directed, and starred in. 
Her character, Sheeran, might sound familiar. She's the daughter of Iranian immigrants who's kind of a hot mess and hasn't come out to her family as bi. Yeah. And Desiree got tons of praise for appropriate behavior. And the headlines put her sexuality front and center. Like, bisexual director Desiree Akvan. Or, bisexual Iranian-American filmmaker Desiree Akvan. Or, perhaps the most reductive label, the bisexual Lena Dunham, Desiree Akvan. (laughs) Desiree realized that being described over and over again as the bisexual made her feel some type of way. Well, it's interesting because it's become antiquated in the past few years that at first it was just invisible and like you were gay or you were straight. It felt like a constant, like a little bit of an Achilles heel or like a half-assed homosexual. But I also felt disingenuous saying anything else but at the same time now, I feel like people in their 20s are, or even people who are my age but who haven't been in serious relationship with women yet, or same-sex relationships, like, think that bisexual is excluding genderqueer and trans folk, and I don't see it that way. But now there seems to be a real, like, antiquated idea of the bisexual, which is what's funny that when I finally made the show, the word itself became obsolete, (laughs) which is just kind of my luck. It seems like, though, it's it's like bisexual can't catch a break because... (laughs) I know. know? Because there was initially, you know, the whole, um, the idea of, like, gay, straight, or lying. And (laughs) then, you know, exactly to what you're saying of of now, we almost, like, fast-forwarded through... Like, we recognized that bisexual erasure was happening, but by the time that recognition happened, queer became sort of reclaimed and more of the the go-to terminology. Like, for millennials, yes, but even more so, I think, with Gen Z. And I wonder why mm-hmm. you think that is. Like, and do you think that it is a useful term? It's I blame Anne Heche. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. How did you meet Ellen? Oh, I saw Ellen across a crowded room. (laughs) I um, was not gay before I met her. I never thought about it. I never... That confuses me. You know what? Uh, Nobody could have been more confused than me, but um, it was very clear from the second I saw her that this was something more powerful than anything I could have controlled. I really just think the Anne Hage came at, like, the perfect time (laughs) for us to, like, we're like, okay, Ellen's out. Maybe I can wrap my brain around it. I don't know. I mean, whatever. Like, she's kind of a masculine woman. All right, great. Like... Uh, I'm still on the fence. Oh, but but she's in love with that pretty white girl. Okay, like I can I can see what they are. And then that pretty white girl fucking broke her heart and then dated men. And you're like, fuck that bitch. <laughs> fuck that bitch. She can't be trusted. And that's that's why bisexual is really, really <laughs> taboo as a word. And we had to come up with a brand new one, like pansexual or genderqueer. Or, or no, genderqueer means something different. I'm sorry. I meant to say queer. It's interesting, though, like, I'll meet women who've never been just, like, hooked up with other women here. In the, sorry, I'm, I'm, make, I'm being, I'm passing judgment. I don't mean to consciously pass judgment. But women who have not been in same-sex relationships who are like, I'm queer. I don't like that term, bisexual. It's so, I don't like labels. And I want to say, like, you know what? I like labels because I had to fight for this one. Like, I have a very strong visceral reaction to that. Um, I'm being an ass. I'm going to get shit for this. I'm sorry. I feel like I already need to apologize. But it. But also, I want to say, like, 
only love for the kids who are making a new wave for themselves now. Like, it's a different relationship to gender than there was when I was growing up. And if I, like, I I get it. And I get why there needs to, I get why that generation wants a lack of, of label and a lack of definition. That they're living a much more queer life. It's a different, it's a different story. I think just sometimes I get a little possessive over or defensive over this title and the fact that people judge it in the way that they do. I think it's an unspoken judgment. Do you think it's possible for bisexuality to kind of lose the baggage at any point? It's just a matter of semantics, and I don't think the word is going to get better. Like, I don't think we're going to reclaim that word. I think all of us would just be like, I'm pansexual. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I don't think, I think it might be too late, but it's, who cares? It's a word. Like, people are cool with the behavior. Well, so, okay, we want to dive more into the bisexual, the show, now available on Hulu to binge. <laughs> um, so the the elevator pitch was, what if a lesbian did the worst thing in the world a lesbian could do and became interested in men? So why examine bisexuality through a lesbian lens and kind of what did you want to convey in that? To me, that was the way to sink my teeth into it, into the shame and doing it from a gay perspective, as opposed to the narrative of a straight person who finds themselves with all the baggage that you get with your first gay relationship. I thought this was a flip on that and also from a very queer point of view which was something I hadn't seen on screen before. And also it felt like the ultimate taboo that you could do from that perspective. Like, not that I think bisexual is the ultimate taboo. I just think that from the perspective of a woman who's been in a very serious long-term relationship for all of her adult life with another woman, to then do this would open up a really weird can of worms dramatically of like, okay, so what are the conversations we have after that? What's the sense of betrayal specifically? Like you have one sense of betrayal when you fall in love with another person or when you fuck another person after you leave your ex of 10 years. But then like, what if that other person is a different gender and so much of your commonality was built around the fact that you were both gay? Can I ask how long you've been fucking that guy? We're not seeing each other anymore. Was it just sex or did you like him? It wasn't just sex. You know, it's it's funny. I blame myself, you know, for not being able to satisfy you. How long have you fancied men? Why didn't you tell me? Because it didn't matter. I was in love with you. It wasn't relevant. It's relevant. So, Desiree, there's a scene where Layla first attempts, emphasis on attempts, to have sex with a cisgender dude, whose side note is really fucking hot. I mean, he's just like an objectively... <laughs> hot dude so yeah I was wondering if you could describe that scene and sort of the feels (laughs) that it encompasses so I just really wanted to see a woman in her 30s have to maneuver around a penis for the first time and like that sheer terror that most girls experience as teenagers as a grown woman who's like has sexual agency and like knows what's up and knows her body and then suddenly is like thrown for a curveball. Oh. Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not really sure how to do it with my hands. 
but I'm just gonna go ahead and use my mouth. No, 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 it's okay. You don't no, have to no, do it's that. No, cool. I'm gonna go ahead, stick it in my mouth. Yeah, I think we should have a breather. It's a very relatable scene. Oh, and then she tries. <laughs> I just think a lot of the joy of making a sex comedy is that kind of shit. Like, what's just absurd about loving and fucking in life? So, um, there's a terrific... I say ter- I've never said this phrase before, but there's a terrific queefing scene um, in yeah. The Bisexual in, uh, in episode three. And we, we did read that you were especially pumped to include queefing do we need more queefs on screen (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm half joking half serious though because queefing like come on yeah i think it goes back to that conversation about sex on screen and how it doesn't reflect sex as i know it to be in life and how i don't think it's enough of a dramatic vehicle either like i think there's so many missed opportunities to get into the nitty-gritty of the way people have sex that to me felt like such a missed opportunity like to show the way so in that sequence it opens episode three and it's showing the difference between um in the same house so Layla rents a room from this straight irish guy and who's a professor and sleeping with one of his students and um she starts sleeping with one of his friends who's a who's a straight guy a cis guy and it's a montage juxtaposing between gabe the roommate and his his 20 something year old uh lover that was my vagina not a fart Okay. And Layla and this guy she's sleeping with. (laughs) (laughs) They both respond to it really differently. And I just wanted to have a queef on screen. I wanted to show that as a vehicle for like, oh, okay, they have different relationships to their bodies and also different relationships to like, to weirdness. Or to like, you know, not being suave all the time. And learning to deal with queefs is part of that. It's got to come out. Yeah, kind of. Like, I I know it's banal and silly and stupid and, like, fart adjacent. But I think, like, fart adjacent shit is telling. Yeah. I just, I'm thinking of one particular experience where, yes, there was a queef. But then it was, like, the most (laughs) epic queef because I got up to walk down the hall. (laughs) And I continued. It just, (laughs) I was like filled like a hot air balloon. I don't know how my body was able to handle that much air inside of it in places where it shouldn't be, but. Because in some positions, that's what happens. Like it just is a matter of positioning and you never know. I mean, I, it's always a surprise to me and you're just suddenly like, whoa, I can't control that. Um, So we talked a lot, obviously, about bisexuality and your experience with coming out and processing all of that. Do you have any advice for listeners who um, also are are bi and don't might feel uncomfortable with that? What would your advice be? It's the same advice I give to to people who tell me like, "What's your advice for becoming a director?" And it's to enable yourself. Mm. That's the thing is like to have the sense of entitlement or the sense of ownership to be like, "I'm going to." blindly have faith in my own taste and my own instincts and my own opinions, create that space for yourself and 
don't wait for someone else to make it okay. Do it yourself. If you wait for that, you might be waiting a long time. And if I had waited for that, I never would have made shit. And make shit, she did. If you're interested, The Bisexual is available on Hulu now to binge. But Caroline, she also directed the Sundance award-winning film The Miseducation of Cameron Post about a gay conversion camp. And we didn't even talk about it. We didn't even have time to get into it. But listeners, so tell us your thoughts about what we did talk about today. What movies or TV shows shaped your ideas about sex and romance growing up? Did Desiree's experiences with bisexuality resonate with you? And how do you feel about the word bisexual? We want to hear from you. Let us know on social at Unladylike Media. You can also email us at hello at unladylike.co or comment on the episode thread in our Facebook group. Head on over to our website, unladylike.co, to find this episode's sources. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter to get actually good news about women in the world every Wednesday. And speaking of good news, in our eternal efforts to make Unladylike as inclusive as possible, we now have a transcript of this week's episode available on our website, unladylike.co. Plus, we'll be doing more transcriptions in the future, including transcribing our back catalog of episodes. Just head over to unladylike.co slash episodes, click on this one, and you'll see a link to the transcript. Unladylike is produced by Nora Ritchie and Sam Lee. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Special thanks to Brendan and the Stitcher LA studio for their help. We are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. Next week, June Diane Rayfield tells us what we should take on when it comes to politics and friendships. I don't know who has time to fucking eat lunch at a restaurant with people, but I don't. And, you know, everybody's always asked, like, want to grab lunch? Like, no, I don't. I don't have time to grab lunch, you know? And so now I'm very comfortable just, like, not taking on lunch. I'm not eating lunch with people. It's not anything I can do. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike so you don't miss our episodes. Find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to be listening right now. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Remember, like, before the first time I went downtown, I mean, if you're catching my drift, right? Am I being too... (laughs) You're not talking about commuting. (laughs) (laughs) First time I went downtown, I was like, oh, God, this is really going to separate, like, the men from the boys. Like, the tourists from the locals. And I remember I went downtown and it was, like, coming home. (laughs) I was like, I've come home. Stitcher. Stitcher.